Welcome to the Ivy Church podcast. For more podcasts and information about Ivy Church, go to ivychurch.org. Um, so, lots of people are going to be travelling at Christmas. Hands up if you're going to travel and go somewhere else over Christmas. Well, it's a few people. Okay, it's a travelling time and people might come and visit you. But we're going to be looking at a journey um, tonight. We're going to look at a few journeys. There's lots of journeys in the Christmas um, season that we could look at in the Bible. But um, we're going to look at a couple of journeys. And, and one journey, a physical journey, first of all, is in Luke chapter 1. Not one we look at very often, this passage, I don't think. In Luke chapter 1, verses, verse 39, I'll start reading it from there. Now Mary arose in those days and went into the hill country with haste to a city of Judah and entered the house of Zacharias and greeted Elizabeth, that's her cousin. And it happened when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary that the baby leapt in her womb And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Then she spoke out with a loud voice and said, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For indeed, as soon as the voice of your greeting sounded in my ears, the babe leapt in my womb for joy. Blessed is she who believed. Blessed is she who believed. For there will be a fulfilment of those things which were told her from the Lord. And Mary said, say said, said. We sometimes have this as a song, but it's interesting to me. This, lots of versions say said. This is what she spoke. It's not just a song. She said this. My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit has rejoiced in God my saviour. For he has regarded the lowly state of his maidservant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me and holy is his name and his mercy is on those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He has put down the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He's helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his seed forever. And Mary remained with her for about three months and then returned to her own house. So as I say, lots of journeys and this is one of them. But we tend to, if you're going to do nativities, you're going to get the kids up and you're going to have the journey. And the journey is going to go from where? Nazareth to Bethlehem. Bethlehem that's the most famous kind of nativity journey isn't it uh, donkeys sheep all of that good stuff is going to be taking place in the nativity scenes etc and actually that's interesting because the journey that, that Joseph and Mary had to take from their ancestral home in Nazareth sorry from their home in Nazareth to their, to their ancestral home in Bethlehem was to register for the Roman census which was the government had put in place 
the government of the day. The, the Caesar, Caesar Augustus, it says in those days, demanded, commanded that a census would be taken right across the whole empire. This wasn't just there. This was like everywhere. The most important, powerful governor said, this is what's going to happen because I want my money. And I want to know where everybody's from and that they've all got, I've got all their details right so I can tax them right. That's the only reason that they had these censuses is so that they could do it. And actually they wanted them to be registered. Actually, there were a number of, of censuses around this time. But this one, literally the word that's used is the enrolment. People would have to go back to where their family ancestry was from. And we find out later that actually Joseph's was from the line of David, the king, the royal line. And actually, if you trace Mary's genealogy in Luke, you actually see that she was somehow related in that there was also a royal line that came through her. So, But from a human level, this is really annoying. They've got to go on this horrible long journey from where they live to this other place. And I don't know, maybe Joseph's excited. Maybe he's kind of thinking, oh, it'll be great when we get there, Mary, and everybody's going to love it. Because, you know, you're going to get to meet my Uncle Bill. Uncle Bill, he makes the best bagels. It's just awesome. Great, he's got a bakery there. It's fantastic. And, and, then, you, and then you can and you can meet my, you know, Auntie June. And she's like, always, when I was a kid, I used to always go and see my Auntie June. And she always loved me and, and all this kind of stuff. But then when they get there, what happens? No room. Why is there no room? Because everybody's there. Because Bethlehem's only a little place. A little town, by the way. A little town in Bethlehem. It's only a small place. And suddenly everybody's there because it's a really popular place for ancestors, it turns out. Everybody's there. Everybody's packed out. So they then, Joseph's going to go then to his house, his house of origin, where his relatives are, knock on the door and say, hey, it's me, Joseph, remember me? And then they're going to look at Mary and see she's well pregnant and be like, I don't think we got an invitation to a wedding, did we? Uh, what's this? And there's shame and rejection in Bethlehem. That's what's waiting for them in Bethlehem. Not big happy reception and woo, wonderful. There's like, get out back if you're going to be anywhere. You're not, bring, you're not bringing her in here. There's no room at the inn. What's the inn? It's not, it's not nothing to do with the hotels and innkeepers and all that. The word inn just means upper room. It's the same word that's used in Acts when it says that there was an upper room where the people prayed in. So he's basically saying there's not even room for you in the place upstairs where we might put guests. You're going to have to go out the back just where the animals eat and feed. That's where you can have the baby if you're going to be anywhere. So, so right from the start, this is a story of rejection. This is a story of, of Shame. This is a story of God coming into a very broken humanity and not despising it, but I mean, fully embracing it and becoming part of it. So you can see that there's, that's what's going on on a, on a human level, but at the back of it, on a divine level, something else is happening because it looks like you've got all of these governors and all of these governments that are making powerful things happen, but there's a very powerful God working out his purpose. And why were they in Bethlehem? Well, they were in Bethlehem because hundreds of years before, a prophet called Micah, in Micah chapter 5, verse 2, had specified the place where the Messiah had to be born. You, Bethlehem Epaphra. It's like you're going to be the place where it happens. 
So this doesn't actually, although Caesar thinks that he's in charge and he knows what's going on, God had it all planned. God had it all prophesied. God had it all listed exactly the place where it had to happen. So what if everything that's happening in the, in the whole empire at that time that looks so crazy and out of control is actually still God is fully in control of the tiniest details and he's prophesied it and he's predicted it and he's planned it. And even when it doesn't look like he knows what he's doing, God knows exactly what he's doing. So we're going to see, as well as that journey, we're going to see that Mary, the mother of Jesus tonight, made another journey on that first Christmas. After the, you know, the scandal broke in her hometown, that she'd become pregnant outside of her marriage to Joseph, where did she go? Well, we, we often forget about this, this journey. It was just, I just read about it though, but this is maybe when she only had a little tiny bump or nothing showing at all. But she goes, and she goes to her relative Elizabeth's house, who lived in a village in the hill country outside of Jerusalem called Judah. She'd found out, you see, that Elizabeth, who had lived her whole life, a very long life, without being able to have a baby, married now to an old man who everybody said that he was well past it as well, suddenly she's pregnant. And we'll look at that journey as well tonight. But there was this other journey that Mary made, an invisible journey, an internal journey. And sometimes those invisible internal journeys are harder. They take longer. They're more difficult. And this one is the, in the heart of this troubled and confused teenage girl who's still processing the news from an angel that out of everybody in the whole world, she was the chosen one. It's a journey of trust. It's a very hard journey. Trust, especially when what we thought could happen or would happen or should happen doesn't happen the way we wanted it to happen or we hoped that it would happen. How do we deal with that? In life, our biggest, longest, toughest journeys are often these journeys of trust and they are internal not external maybe nobody even sees that journey that we're taking on the inside but from the moment that this divine messenger an angel called Gabriel which basically means God's strong man turns up and gives Mary a new assignment from God which means that if she says yes to it she's invited into a whole new trajectory for the rest of her life. Once God has spoken she's going to find out that now there's a possibility for a new plan. Well it's still God's plan, it's always been God's plan but she's invited to step into that plan and everything changes if she'll do that. See the Old Testament was finished. We just heard about something from the book of Malachi. The Old Testament, Malachi finishes with a curse. God says, I'm going to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children, lest I strike the, strike the land with a curse. The Old Testament finishes with a curse. But how does the New Testament end? Revelation. With a blessing. What happened in the middle? Jesus. Jesus is the only one who can turn the curses into blessings. So for 400 years... The Old Testament finishes, the silence, and then a miracle birth starts to happen. Who's? Well, interestingly, not Mary. This other woman, Elizabeth, who's going to end up being the mother of John the Baptist, who is a cousin, who's related. So God starts to move in this one particular family. And then... 
if we look at this, it says, if you've got your Bible open, if not, why not have a look? Luke chapter 1 and verse 26 says, Now, in the sixth month, now that's not saying the sixth month of the year, it's in the sixth month of what? The sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy. That's, this is timed, this promise comes in the middle of somebody else's promise. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a city. City, it's not really a city. It's a town. But they didn't, the Greeks don't have a word for, 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 for town. They basically have city or little village. So this was somewhere in the middle of that. Named Nazareth. It's not a big place. It's not an important place. Nobody, nothing special ever happens in Galilee until now. Gabriel turns up. I don't know whether he just walks in, knocks on the door. I don't know. But he comes anyway. And he shows up in this nowhere place to a nobody of a girl and he says, Hello. We make it hail. It's not. It's just, hello. It's like, I don't want to freak you out, but I'm going to freak you out. You are highly favoured. He comes to a virgin. The word virgin is the word parthenos and it means one who has had no sexual relations. That's it. It's never used of a married woman. According to Roman law, listen to this, the minimum age for girls to be engaged and married, the minimum age, was 12. That was the case across the Roman Empire. For boys, it was 14. Why so young? To guarantee their virginity. That's the only reason. As soon as they reached puberty, they would be engaged and promised to be married. So it says here, now she, to a virgin, betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph. That's like an engagement. It's more than an engagement. We hear engagement and we think of that thing where, oh yeah, I'll have a ring, thanks very much. One day maybe we'll get married. That's not this. This is so solid. This betrothal is serious. This is arranged by the families. This is like when they're growing up, the mum thinks, oh, she'd be good for him. And so they start to make arrangements between the families and the approaches are made and dowries are discussed and payments are made and pledges are made. And now certainly there was no sexual relationship before, during, at all, the betrothal. It never happened. And that usually would last about a year. After the betrothal, the Hebrew man actually didn't even see the girl that he was betrothed to during that time. Wouldn't happen. What he would do is, he would say, I am going now to prepare a place for you. That's what he said. And when it is ready, I will come back and take you so that where I am, you also may be. Sound familiar? Who said that? Jesus. Who too? His bride. His betrothed. And then what he would do is the, the, the groom-to-be would go to his father's house. 
and he would make a room on the, fa- the side of the father's house. And this was basically the wedding chamber, but often this would be the place where the new, newly married couple would live. Now, if you know the rest of your Bible on that bit, how many rooms has Jesus got? Many rooms. And, and then he said, this is an interesting thing, when he thought it was ready, it wasn't necessarily ready. He would say, look, it's not my job to know when I've made this good enough. The father checks it. When the father says, yeah, that room is good enough, then he would be able to go to the one to whom he was betrothed and with a shout he would announce, get ready. The wedding feast is about to happen. And then he and all of his guys would go and she'd be waiting and all of, all the, all of the, the bridesmaids would be ready too and they would expect, be expected to be ready from the moment of betrothal until the moment of the feast. There'd be this waiting and expectancy for that most exciting thing when then there would be seven days of wedding feast. No wonder they ran out of wine in Cana. Seven days of party. At the end of which... The friend of the groom, the, 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 the best friend of the groom, would then hand over the bride to the groom and then everybody would withdraw and the wedding would be consummated. That's pretty cool, isn't it? whole other sermon book of sermons maybe. So Mary, what I want to say is this, Mary was betrothed. To who? To Joseph. We've already said he's got royal DNA. Even though he's the carpenter locally, he's, he's from the line of David. And her name was Miriam. We, 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 the Greek form of that is Mary, but the Hebrew word is Miriam. That was her name. That's what she would have been known as in the village. And what does it mean? It means exalted one. Interestingly. What does Joseph mean? Father of many sons. So there's a bit of pressure on this, you know, um, marriage to be. This, uh, this thing that God had planned. But they didn't know God had planned it. They're just doing life. That's the thing, isn't it? See, isn't like they're walking around going, oh, I've got, God's got a plan for my life. They're just doing life. And then one day God interrupts and comes in with this message. Hello. and hello highly favoured one the Lord is with you and she's like me this is what happens with angels Gideon remember Gideon at one point he's just there and he's doing his bit and he's and and then and then then an angel turns up and says lo mighty man of valour the Lord is with you and he's like me and I think there has to be something of that going on for Mary at this point because she's just a young girl nothing special She's got her own plans. She's got her life laid out the way she thinks it's going to work. Well, actually, she wasn't even involved very much in making many of these plans. A lot of these plans have just been made for her in that culture. She hasn't really got much say in a great deal of this. You know, we have this romantic version. It's cultural. So a lot of this is cultural in terms of how relationships work. But then she goes through these different stages. I'm going to start with the first one. The first stage is anxiety. When Mary first encountered the angel, what happened? How do you think she feels? It says this. 
Rejoice, highly favoured one, the Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. But when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying and considered what manner of greeting this was. Then the angel said, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favour with God. Verse 29, she was greatly troubled at this statement. And it was what he said. It wasn't even that the angel turned up that freaked her out. It was what he said, it says, that gave her anxiety. You know, we have all these pictures in some churches and, and statues even in some other ones of Mary looking all kind of dressed in blue and, and serene with like a shiny plate around her head, isn't she? But this says she was like, what are you talking about? And then, why? Because I'll tell you why. Because he's not talked about the baby yet. He's not talked about her being pregnant yet. He's just talked about her being favoured. That freaks her out. Me. Why? Wrong house. You know, wrong street, wrong village. Certainly wrong Mary. In fact, maybe he got it wrong because he just, you know, he turned up. But actually, it's the next verse that he has to tell her. No, God knows your name. Do not be afraid, Mary. It's like, I know I'm at the right house. I know I'm with the right person. You are highly favoured and you will conceive and give birth to a son and you're to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever and his kingdom will never end. Now, as I read this, I don't actually see her being that reassured at this point. Why? Because she knows the implications of what this means. She thinks about being pregnant. See, we get used to the story. We lose the reality. In that culture, a woman who found herself pregnant by a man she was not betrothed to may not be pregnant very much longer because she may not be alive very much longer. She's going to soon possibly find herself with a wall behind her and an angry mob picking up rocks in front of her. And the person who was expected to throw the first stone in the culture would be her own father because of the shame that she brought upon the culture. This is like what happens around the world in various cultures even now. They call it honour killing. It's the most dishonourable, horrible thing. Nothing honourable about it. But all she wanted, all she had planned was this nice, normal life and she's young and she's betrothed and she's in this serious commitment. And then that raises another question, verse 34. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? And she has to be thinking about, well, and as well, what will other people think? As well as her own danger, how is this going to affect the people who love her most and who she loves? What's, what's her mum going to say? What's her dad going to say? What's Joseph going to say? The hurt, the, the heartbreak of this. Her fiancé seems like a nice guy, but he's got no reason to believe that I'm pregnant by God's story. He'd just think, at best, she's gone crazy. Parents, they'd be shamed for life. Anxiety, what's anxiety? Fear. What's it fear of? The unknown. We don't know what's going to happen, but we fear the worst. When we don't know what's going to happen, very often we, we fear the worst. We catastrophize it. 
There's a woman called Brene Brown, and in her various books, Vulnerability and various things, she talks about how what we often will do is rehearse the worst case. We, we, make, we make the worst that could happen probably what's going to happen. I had a thing the other week with this where um, Hannah, our daughter, has been, had been taken really ill and rushed into hospital and, and I was somewhere else. I had to get on a train, got there really late, got to the hospital, I was with her and, uh, and then we put her into a different, um, they moved her from one place to another and they're talking about the, 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 the stroke team coming in. And I'm like, stroke team? Because of the symptoms and the various things that she'd had. And I'm like... And then, then they, they, put, they did a, a blood pressure test. And I said, sorry, I said, I think I could do with my blood pressure being taken. Oh, man, I'm like, Phew. Anyway, well, Zoe did it because she's a nurse. And guess what? Do you think my blood pressure was normal? I, I'm like, <laughs> so what do I do then? I'm worrying about my blood pressure all day. I'm not just worrying about Hannah. I'm also now worrying about me. And then I'm thinking, what if I die? This is it. My blood pressure has gone through the roof. And like, I'm lying in bed and I'm saying to Zoe, can you hear your own heartbeat? <laughs> I can hear my heartbeat. Can you hear your heartbeat? I can hear my heartbeat. And she's like, just shut up, it's fine. No, no, listen, can you hear it? Can I, I can hear it, I can hear it. My blood pressure, it's, it's pounding in my ears. It's pounding in my ears, Zoe. I'm like, this. the next day, we got to somewhere else's house and they said, oh, we've got a, uh, a blood pressure monitor. You can use that if you want. It's our house group. I said, okay, let's get the blood pressure monitor out. And as soon as it comes in, I'm thinking, it's going to be really high, it's going to be really high, it's going to be really high. Do you think it was really high? It was really high. And I'm like, oh, it's really, really high. And like for days, I'm literally walking around like this. <laughs> oh, a bit of a headache. Oh, maybe that's it. Maybe it's going to happen. I'm like that. So I, I'm talking from experience. <laughs> yeah. It took a, a conversation with a very good friend who's also a doctor to reassure me. And then on Tuesday, I'm going to get in a 24-hour monitor that will help me to find out if I have got a blood pressure problem, in which case it gets dealt with. But so often anxiety does that, doesn't it? It makes the worst that could happen what's inevitably going to happen and tells us that. This fear of the unknown, that uncertain future. Mary gets invited by God into something that is super scary. She's greatly troubled. All kinds of things can happen like that. They want to put you in shock, into fear, into denial, even anger. All these things, they're natural human reactions to stress. Something's threatening us. See, there used to be these things, when they drew maps in the old days, people who drew maps, they, would, they drew what they could and what they knew, and then beyond that, what did they write on the outsides of the maps? Here they be dragons. It's like, we don't know what's over there, but there's probably dragons coming to get us. So, so that was how they saw the world. And we can live like that, thinking, well, I don't know what's going to go on over there. There's probably dragons. See, here's the thing. We're always going to have to face the unknown as we face the future. As I talk with people, the longer I live, even during the last 11 years while I've been here at Ivy, so often you realise, people, who, the longer you live, you realise that the plans and the things that you thought that you had when, that would happen when you were young, don't. And, and we hang on to them as if they're reality and if that's going to be the way it will happen. But so often, they're not. And those people and those plans and those places that we think are so important, actually in the long run, you look back and you think, oh yeah, I was there and that was good and that was awful and that was good and that was all right, but now I'm here and we move and life does that. But in the day at the time, it just seems so big. That change seems so scary. 
And there are things, you know, again, the, the more people you get involved in a church, I've said this before, in some ways it's much better to run a little church with hardly anybody in it. Because the more people there are, the more people there are to love. The more people there are to be hurt when they're hurting. To be sad when they're sad. They're just, they're just and, and, and it's all kinds of things. It is, it is deaths. It is diseases and divorces. It is friends and family changes and all these things that we thought would always just go on the way it would always go on. And it goes on something completely different. And what do you do with that? See, when I was a teenager, if you ask me, I would never have dreamed that I'd be doing this at 54. It's like, if you'd have told me, oh, you're going to be leading a church in Manchester, I'd have said, you are crackers. There's no way I'm going to be doing that. I think I'm going to be a vet <laughs> at 14. Then I found out I didn't really like animals that much, so that kind of went. But, but you see, this would have been the last thing. In fact, when I first began to God, get God's call on my life in my early 20s, the only reason I wasn't scared was because I was thick. <laughs> I was like, I was too ignorant to be afraid. I didn't even know what it actually would involve. And there's been, there's been lots of great things too, but I never knew about the pain that there is in ministry. I had no idea about the hurt that you go through at times. I didn't know about the criticism that you get when you're just trying to help people. I never knew, I didn't, you know, and I hate criticism. I never knew about the expectations people would have on a church leader, so much higher than they might have about themselves. I would have been greatly troubled if I wasn't too thick. I might have said no, which is why from anxiety, see the next stage is acceptance. Think again about Mary in this internal journey. Although she started in this place called anxiety, she didn't stay there. By the time we get to verse 38, after the, the angel gives us some more reassurance, she says this, may it be to me as you have said. To quote the Beatles, let it be. When I find myself in times of trouble, Mother Mary comes to me speaking words of wisdom, let it be. She says, no time for singing. She says, I am the Lord's servant, let it be to me according to your word. That's a good prayer, isn't it? I'm the Lord's servant. It's like I don't get to call the shots anymore. Do we realise that when we're a Christian? It's like I'm no longer in charge of my life. I am the servant of the Lord. I'm the handmaid of the Lord. Literally, I'm the, I'm the slave of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. This is the move from anxiety into acceptance. It's like I don't understand it all, but I'm not God. So let it be. Now acceptance is not necessarily joyful. When you read that, it isn't like she's going, oh yes. I don't get that. You don't get enthusiasm. It doesn't sound like that. This is just a simply a stage of saying, okay God. Okay. I don't understand. I don't get it, but okay. And that was all God needed to get the miracle started. Just a miracle starting mustard seed size bit of faith gets this 
fully human, fully God embryo to be born. The miracle that we call the incarnation. See, God understood. I'm glad he did that. That's just where Mary was at at that time. That was as much as he could get out of her. And it was okay for now. See, sometimes we might even come into that ourselves. Something happens, rocks our world, shakes it all up. And we, we still are in anxiety. But the, the, the biggest move we can make is just to us to get to acceptance and say, all right, I don't know, but you do. And God meets us there. And he can still do a lot there. But he doesn't want us to stay there. And in time, he invites us to make another journey. See, I don't know about you, but if it was me and I was the one that was inviting somebody into a miracle, if out of the whole world I'd chosen somebody and said, I want to use you in a really special and particular way to do something that's going to change the whole world, the whole universe, the whole of history, and they just went, yeah, okay, let it be. I'd be a bit... You know, it's like when I proposed to Zoe. Well, I was testing a proposal years ago. I was just throwing it out there in a kind of, well, you wouldn't marry me, would you, kind of thing. One of those sort of, you know, kind of thing. And, uh, and, then, and then at some point I was doing that. And then at one point I said, uh, I said this. I really took all my courage. I'd never said this to a girl. I said, I love you. And she said, oh, I'm very fond of you. <laughs> And it's like, this is exceptional. You're like, yeah, okay. But that's not really what God wants to hear. And yeah, God can still do yes, do do great things with a yes. It's better than a no. You can't do anything with a no. With disobedience. Not even God can do that. You can't do much with unbelief. There's times when Jesus went to a village and he says that he couldn't do much because the people there didn't believe in him. Not even God could do it because people didn't believe God could do it. But at least this is a step in the right direction. And, he, and God understands and he takes us on that step. But acceptance and obedience are not all that God hopes for his children. He doesn't just want us to be passive and, all right then, case sirrah, sirrah, you're in charge. He, you know, he doesn't want us to be like Jonah going to Nineveh because a whale spits us there. He wants us to want what he wants. And again, this can take time and it's relationship and all of that. And I can see there's all kinds of human reasons for, for Mary to wobble between anxiety and acceptance. I think she's going to go backwards and forwards between these things. It doesn't just happen. And God gets that where she is, but then something happens that begins to take her from this place of acceptance into the next step, third stage of the internal journey. She's got to go somewhere now. Maybe it was just anxiety that drove her. Maybe she's just looking for a miracle and, and to happen. She didn't understand it. But this is where we realise who you surround yourselves with really, really matters. Because the angels mentioned somebody who's had a miracle. Somebody else who's had not the same thing, but some supernatural thing has happened. And I think that makes her go, oh, I need to go where somebody else believes. Some people wander away from church and then wonder why they wandered away from faith. But what you should find in church 
is people with faith. It's not really a church otherwise, to be honest. But she's not told Joseph yet, it would appear. She's not told her mum and dad yet. But she thinks, I'm going to go and talk to somebody who will get it, I hope. So Mary went to visit her cousin Elizabeth, this older woman who's having a miracle baby too. So there's a supernatural connection between the two women. It's not the same, as I said. Elizabeth is having a baby very late, but she has a human father. But two miracle mums are going to meet. And she gets there, and instead of the condemnation, instead of the name-calling, instead of doubt, what happens? The baby inside of Elizabeth does some kind of backflip in the womb. John the Baptist is like, whoa! Hey, cousin! And then Elizabeth is filled with the Holy Spirit and, and says, blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you'll bear. It's like, she knows! She's not, you know, maybe she didn't even, she's not even showing, but there's something in she knows. By the way, I've got to say this. We know how old John the Baptist is at this point. Six months. 24 weeks. And that has to make me think about the abortion laws. When I see that God is at work in him. And God is a fetus at this point. And I know people have tough decisions to make and hard decisions and many people, you know, that's not... I can't imagine the choices some people have to make. But, but when, when there's this meeting that takes place before these children are even born and, and they are babies... And Elizabeth, filled with the Holy Spirit, says, Blessed is she who has believed that the Lord would fulfill his promises to her. Let me say that again. This is the difference now. Because there's another move that's about to take place for Mary into adoration. Because all of a sudden, Mary gets it. When she's around another believer, when she's around this, this other person who believes something supernatural is still possible, who reminds her, believe God, believe God, believe the promises, blessed, you'll be blessed, you'll be happy if you believe the promises that God has told you. That's all she says to her. What does she sing? My soul glorifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Saviour. For time's sake, I'm not going to read it all through, but this is an incredible thing that we started with. He's performed mighty deeds with his arms, scattered those who are proud in his inmost thoughts. He's brought down rulers from their thrones and lifted up the humble, filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. What's happened to Mary? Something's happened to Mary. She's gone from being, she's no longer this frightened girl, anxious and wondering. And she's not just a, a passively resigned young woman trying to figure it out and saying, okay, let it be. She's like this fired up rebel for God's justice system, for the kingdom to come on the earth. She wants to see the whole world change. 
She's still the same girl. Outwardly, none of her different, nothing's changed. She's still got the same circumstances. But something internal has moved and shifted inside of her. See, throughout history, this, this song, throughout history, ever since, poor and oppressed people have taken this song and made it their own and identified with it. It's the longest set of words spoken by a woman in the New Testament. A poor woman, a young woman, a pregnant, unmarried, poor, young woman. Mary, I believe, is a prototype Christian. She's the first person to have Jesus live inside her. What does the prototype woman Christian do? She preaches. That's big, isn't it? She's a preacher. That's preaching. If it ain't preaching, it'll do till preaching happens. That's a preach. Oscar Romero, priest and martyr, drew a comparison between Mary and the poor and powerless in his own community. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German pastor and theologian who was executed by the Nazis, called this, what we call the Magnificat, the most passionate, wildest, most revolutionary hymn ever sung. But I don't even think it was a song. It's, It's a preach. She said these words. She's preaching. If it was a man, if it was a man, I bet you they'd say they'd say that she preached. He preached these words. White evangelical men like me hardly ever preach on this. I can't remember, to be honest with you, ever hearing a sermon on this. Because why? We want to keep Mary silent and serene in a nativity scene like that or as a quiet womb doing what she's told why would men powerful men men like me want to draw attention or highlight a woman who preaches the gospel, who maybe even does sing it because she's that passionate with such fire about the hungry and the poor and how God actually prefers them to the rich and the powerful. And one day they're going to be thrown down. A young radical woman preaches, sings about toppling thrones, rulers, no longer exploiting economic structures that are exploitative and unjust. And she, she brings it about those things. And she speaks about a time when everybody's going to get to enjoy the good things of God. It's all about, and this is all done in praise. It's all adoration. What happened to Mary? This internal journey. This is where God wants to take us. Get the band to come up and you guys just to help us in a moment. We're going to move into adoration before we're done. But remember, it, began, it begins at anxiety and God comes and speaks to us in our anxiety. And he wants us to believe some good news. It moves to acceptance where when, when we say, yes, let it be to me according to your word. But then he wants to shift from that and he wants to take us into his place of adoration. 
Once she starts worshipping, I was I went to one of the services this morning. Various things I'm anxious about and thinking about and all that. But I tell you, there's a couple of things. As soon as I got into worship, they just fall away. When you see the size of God and you know that He loves you and how powerful He is, and I don't know how I do life except as a worshipper of Jesus Christ. I dread to think. I never dream of going back. So, I don't know whether this journey sounds familiar to you, and it might be that you're on this journey in some way, in different parts of your life. All I want to say is, whichever stage you're at in the journey, God will meet you there. And God has a word of hope for you in every one of those parts of the journey. Even if it seems like God's brought a new reality into your life, and you don't understand it, and you don't even know what he's doing, God knows what he's doing. And he's there with you. It comes down to trust. So what's your next step? God doesn't want his children to live and stay in anxiety. He says, don't be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, make your request known to God. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will keep and guard your hearts in the knowledge and love of Christ Jesus so is the Holy Spirit speaking to you tonight and maybe he's rattling your cage a bit to take you out of your plan your ideas of what it should look like to get you into his plan and his ideas of what it could look like with him my soul glorifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my saviour let's stand and worship thanks for listening for more podcasts go to ivychurch.org media